and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. There's in every one of us, even those who seem most moderate, the type of desire that is terrible, lawless, and wild. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are finally actually getting to the peaceable kingdoms of Arcadia. I know that we said, was it like three weeks ago now, that our (laughs) next episode was going to be Arcadia, and then things happened, Uh and we got a little distracted, and the notes didn't get written out, and we had a couple of guests, and well, now we're here. I'm blaming (laughs) the chaotic alignment. That's just (laughs) meh. You know what? I mean, we're visiting Arcadia as we are going to find. This is not the place for me. (laughs) No. uh, There are aspects of it that really speak to me on a very visceral level. Oh, yes. I agree with that. Absolutely. Until you start getting into how it's interpreted. Yes. Arcadia as it. See here. What's the word I'm looking for? Arcadia as Paragon. Arcadia in concept is a wonderful place that would be my ideal location. Arcadia in practice would never work. Would never work. (laughs) I mean, we can talk about this a bit. Absolutely. Like I said, on paper, it looks great. In practice, it's going to be run by fascists. I mean, really, that's the only way to put it. It's going to be run by Mussolini himself. (laughs) I don't know about Mussolini himself, because it's still a good aligned plane. It's primarily law but it is a good aligned plane and i don't think that your fascist analogs from the 20th century are going to fit here because of the good part of it okay so again way off branch talking though mussolini allied himself with the big bad yes but mussolini within his own district was just that strict law for the sake of law and everything ran because of that it's that very type of this is the law it's going to happen this way or else and then boot everything out in the material plane that's about the only type i could even imagine that would even have the compunction to run a society like this So I have the privilege of a little bit of foresight because I've been working on the (laughs) notes for next week's episode. And we'll get into this a little bit more next week, but there are a lot of parallels between Arcadia as presented in second edition and modern day political positioning and posturing in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. And even still, the way I was going to start with this, because I mean, hey, look, rabbit trail right off the start because Arcadia and I am like, Arcadia is my soul's antithesis. It's pretty, but it's my soul's antithesis. It is. (laughs) (laughs) But Arcadia kind of got the fifth edition treatment through most of the editions and even looking up for information on Arcadia, even as far back as second and third edition, really a couple paragraphs at first, and that was it. And some of the other books, they went a little more in depth, but Arcadia was really glossed over. It was there. They talked a little bit about it, but nothing like the other planes. In second edition, whenever Planescape came out, whenever they were going over the good aligned planes, each individual plane actually got its own book. So Arcadia has its own book. Oh, okay. I was not able to find that. Yeah, if you go on to, I think it's the DMs Guild, it's the Planes of Law bundle. Okay. So it's got Akron, Arcadia, Bator, and Mechanus. 
Excellent. Those four have their own separate books. There's also a monster manual with supplemental monsters for those planes and also a player's guide for the planes of law that has different information specifically for the players to keep from revealing too much of what is presented to the DM so that they artificially keep the players more in the dark so that they have to figure it out on their own. Oh, that's a good way to do it. I like that. But yeah, so there is an Arcadia book from second edition Planescape. It's like 34 pages long and it has three adventure hooks at the end of it. And so yeah, that is the bulk of what is available on Arcadia because Arcadia in the third edition manual of the planes was only like two and a half pages. Yeah, I was going to say it really got skimped over in most of what I had found. I hadn't found the book, so that would explain a lot of it. Yeah, and just because I happen to have the book here in front of me, I'm wanting to see, oh, hey, Arcadia actually has four paragraphs in the fifth edition DMG. Oh, my. They're small, but there's four of them, and they have one optional rule, and the optional rule is that creatures on Arcadia cannot be poisoned or frightened and are immune to poison and disease. Interesting. And that plays into some of the aspects that are present even in second edition. Aspects that are the nature of the plane because it is a plane of plenty. It's providing the greatest benefit to the greatest good. Good. And so things that would impede that are kept from flourishing. So things, you know, like poisons and diseases, things that are going to kill the wildlife, things that are going to harm the crops, those are all things that are not going to be allowed by the nature of Arcadia. Similarly, things like infectious diseases passing between people would hinder the common good, and so by the nature of the plane are prevented from taking hold the biology student me is screaming right now while i get it philosophically that no that's not (laughs) how this works that's not how any of this works but we are tiptoeing and dancing around arcadia bunch let's just go ahead and just jump right in with both feet and what do we got here all right so arcadia is a plane of lawful neutral good so it sits between the lawful neutral plane of mechanus and the lawful good plane of mount celestia Rather than focusing on regimented order for the sake of order, which is what Mechanus would be, or the perfection of the individual, like Mount Celestia, Arcadia is about the perfection of purpose for providing the largest benefit to the most people. It is the land of perfection. It is where laws are made for the common good. It is the plane where harmony is born. So, yeah, that sounds great. And again, until you really start looking at it, this is, what was it, the Stepford Wives? Where it was like the giant suburban community where everything was perfect and groomed. And then it's yes, like, I think so. Wait, this is horribly unnatural. This is wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, this is, while it's supposed to be a, a lawful, neutral, good plane, this is a hellscape. This is an absolute hellscape to me. It's just <laughs> freaky and wrong. It should not be. And it should be played with that sort of uncanny valley mentality. Absolutely. To it. Yes, absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah, that is a perfect way to present this. Yeah, it is a plane of philanthropy and peaceful coexistence, at least for everyone who is lawful and more or less good. Right. If you don't fall into the categories that they associate themselves with, you're going to have problems here. Yes. So every aspect of the plane as a whole, even the quote unquote wilderness, is regimented and orderly. 
So all of the trees are of an ideal size and shape. All of the crops grow in the fields in nice, neat, regimented rows. All of the trees in the forest are equally distant and have branches that appear to have been intentionally positioned and shaped for the greatest aesthetic effect. Even wildflowers are separated by color and all of them are of a uniform height to the surrounding grasses. This is going to be your very late 90s, early 2000s CG rendered landscape. Oh, I was even going to go earlier than that. I was going to say this is going to be like your 1950s stereotypical suburban leave it to beaver where everyone's coming out. You know, all the fathers are leaving for work at about the same time with maybe like a five or six second deviance. They're all sitting there trimming the hedges at that perfect height kind of together. Everything's got that almost like in Fallout 3 when you do the virtual thing before it gets all kind of creepy and weird and you have the geck and everything's just perfect. Yeah, um, Tranquility Lane. Yes. Yeah. But it's like those earlier video games where they only had room for so many assets. And so they would only make like three trees and then just copy paste them everywhere. Yes. Oh, the perfect game. I got it. I don't know if you've played this one or not, but on the old NES, Paperboy. I am familiar with it, but I've not played it. Where you just had the houses that were just sitting there in blocks. And like the hardest thing you had to do was there might be like a grate in the road or something like that. That was your big obstacle. You had to like mm-hmm. go around stuff. But yeah, everything was just cut and paste. Or even the Sims really. Early Sims were like that too. Oh, there's my residential area. <laughs> yeah, it's the one that's got the big blue square around it with the R in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or wait, or was residential green? I can't remember. Residential was green. Uh, yeah, residential was, was green. Commercial's yellow. Industrial was red. No, commercial was blue. Industrial was yellow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and then your fire department was red. Right. I played way yeah. too much Sims in, in high school. <laughs> I haven't played a Sims game since SimCity, the original SimCity. Yeah. I didn't even get to SimCity 2000 where it went into. 3D. See, I played some City 2000. That's what they had on our school computers. But yeah, so again, everything is that really idyllic. Idealized. Yeah, idealized. And everything is run like that. Mm-hmm. The problem is everything in the plane keeps itself to that. So any kind of deviation, as we'll start to get into, is purged. If you don't fit, you're gone. Bye. Yeah, pretty much. Even the quote-unquote wild animals that live in Arcadia, they generally leave visitors alone unless they do something specifically to upset the order of the plane. That could be something as substantial as setting fire to the forest, or it could be something as minor as walking off the road and through the grass. Another great example of this, again, for the Star Trek friends, one of the earlier episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, where Wesley Crusher walks on the grass, and he doesn't realize that it's a capital crime to walk on the grass. And so they've got this perfectly scientifically advanced community. He steps on the grass to chase ass for a ball or something like that, and is immediately sentenced to death. Yeah. <laughs> so within Arcadia, you still have your four seasons, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall. Each season is three months. Each month is 27 days, and the weather in that season exemplifies the ideal weather of that season. So for winter, the land is covered with a nice even blanket of snow everywhere, except where it would impede the function of the plane. So like the roads are not going to be covered. The sidewalks are not going to have snow on them, but all of the grassland is going to have snow on it. All the trees are going to be covered in this nice, beautiful coating of snow. It's going to look like it just snowed four inches outside all winter long. Right. 
one or two lakes might be frozen for the idyllic ice skating, but then there'll be an outlet so the animals can still drink. There'll still be, you know, flowing water by and large. Yeah. So again, think of like Comes Kincaid. I don't think he did too many winter scenes, but it's going to have that again. Yeah, he did. Okay. It'd be like a Kincaid painting pretty much. And just like, there's going to be the warm fire inside of each and every house, glowing lights and clear roads, like just freshly, but still kind of glistening. So like it reflects just enough light to be pretty, but very clear still. There might be some hot cocoa. <laughs> oh, there's almost certainly hot cocoa. <laughs> Springtime has flowers blooming everywhere. It's going to be a riot of color. You're going to be able to smell all of the flowers everywhere. It's going to be just this constant perfume of floral scent. But yet, because of the greatest good, the pollen is going to be near non-existent. So there will be no allergies, which that's not how flowers work. Again, the biologist to me is screaming, but it's perfect. Yay. Right. My car's not going to be covered in yellow gunk. I'm not going to wake up puffy eyed and sneezing all morning. It's wonderful. I can finally survive the springtime without pharmaceuticals. It'll be wonderful. Yeah. That said, picking a flower, strictly forbidden. Don't do it. Es ist verboten. <laughs> Summertime is warm, but not hot. And everything is coming into season. All of the bounty is ripening for the harvest. So all of your crops are going to be starting to come in in the summertime. So all of the petitioners that are the farm laborers, the people who are out there working with their hands, all of them are going to be out working the fields and bringing in the harvest. Yeah, again, it's going to be warm. Everyone's running out in tank tops and shorts and sundresses. And you've got, you know, summer picnics and there's no going to be no ants in your picnic. So that's wonderful. And everyone who has free time is going to be playing whatever sports game they're going to play in the very carefully selected park grass area again only in that area kind of perfect kind of creepy but very ideal your evenings are going to be cool you're going to have this wonderful summer breeze probably extremely clear skies for stargazing because there are stars on an outer plane we'll get to that yeah again everything's just perfect and then autumn you're going to have that riot of color and it's going to have the quote from the second edition book is an aura of sadness with the underlying hope for the new year so it is that time of melancholy where everything is dying back the cycle is completing but there's always that anticipation for the season to come right so elton john can kick in the door start singing the circle of life <laughs> <laughs> which i need to see now i need to see like old-fashioned elton john in the 80s with the giant sunglasses and the sparkles and like the giant pump shoes and just kicking the door with a guitar the circle of life yeah this needs to happen. i don't know as if sir elton john can quite physically manage that anymore but I'd love to see it too. <laughs> <laughs> and with the respect of the two primary layers of the plane, the first layer of Abelio and the second layer of Buxenus, the seasons are inverted between the two. So when it's spring in one, it's fall in the other. When it's summer in one, it's winter in the other. So it's a very northern southern hemisphere for, you know, our material plane. So that's an easy transition to make. And because you are able to walk from one layer into the next and have just a natural crossing a threshold boundary change, you can go from walking down the road in the summertime, you cross this imaginary line that isn't very imaginary, and suddenly you're standing in <laughs> six feet of snow. And that wouldn't be six feet. It'd, again, a perfect four inches everywhere. It'd be ankle deep, if that. And yeah, though that transition would be really weird because you'd have that solid line of like, here be snow and there's warm grass, snow, 
warm grass. Wait, what's holding it back? <laughs> yeah, not only that, but time also has a sort of a strange progression within Arcadia. There is this orb called the Orb of Day and Night that sits atop the tallest mountain in Arcadia. It's on the first layer of Arcadia. The identity of this mountain is unclear. They don't ever put it into a position. You see the orb on the maps of Arcadia, but you never see the mountain that the orb is attached to on the map in Arcadia. It's just somewhere there. (laughs) There is one very tall mountain that is called out called Mount Klangeddon, which we'll get to a little bit later, that it could be on top of this mountain, but I don't think it is because that mountain is a divine realm and the god that runs that divine realm doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be controlling day and night. Yeah, I was going to say that mountain is fairly thoroughly mapped out as well. So if the orb was there, then it would be known. That said, there could be another mountain. Again, coming back before, there's not a lot of detail written about Arcadia. So while Mount Klangeddon is fairly high up there and it is definitely one of the larger, taller mountains, it might not be exactly the tallest, even by, you know, a fraction of a millimeter or whatever it is. So there is that. And this orb of day night is very much kind of like the whole 80s sun moon thing so like one side there's the light and it goes and your light transitions there's not like a transition into dusk and dawn it is a hard solid sharp line here be sun here be dark and it moves and you can actually watch it rotate yeah and you have 12 hours of daytime and 12 hours of nighttime no more no less so in the daytime it is full-on midday bright for 12 hours And then whenever it gets back around to the night side of the orb of day and night, it's full on middle of the night for 12 hours. You can look up into the sky and you see the stars, you see the moon, you see all of the things that you would expect to see in a night sky. If you have a decent enough vantage point, you can watch the line of day progress across the land and you can watch day turn into night or night turn into day as the orb rotates. So the scientist in me is going to sit here and I'm going to roll, I guess this would be a nature check, maybe just a general knowledge check with an Intel score. But this sounds like a lunarscape. So I'm guessing there's no atmosphere here, right? (laughs) Could you talk about like on the moon and on the celestial bodies that have no planet, at least in our material plane, that's how it works there because there's nothing to diffuse the sunlight or starlight, whatever it is. So like on the moon, no atmosphere. So you have what they call the Terminator line and it is bright or it is dark in there. You have that. So transferring that here, I'm presuming there's no pollen. There's no atmosphere. This place is weird. It's magic. I ain't got to explain shit. (laughs) Now he's going to throw dice at me. D&D magic. Shut up, noob. (laughs) So there are some questions about what the stars in the sky actually are, because this is an outer plane. This isn't the material plane. So what are the stars that are up in the sky? Some scholars within lore claim that they are the realms of other gods, but that doesn't explain why there's so many of them. So what happened is the writers from D&D in 2nd Edition wrote this out, and they were plotting everything down, and someone was like, hey, what about that? And they're like, big old retcon stamp. <laughs> there, there's a reason. <laughs> D&D magic, shut up. <laughs> so a personal thought, because I got to thinking about this a little bit while I was doing the notes, is that possibly these are the essences of dead gods. 
Okay. The physical form of the god ends up going into the astral sea. We know that the physical forms of dead gods go into the astral sea. The Githyanki have built a city on the corpse of a dead god. So we know that that is a thing. But the divine forms don't seem to have a divine essence, which means that the essence is either destroyed or it goes somewhere. I could see that. And so my personal thought is that this is a view into where the celestial essences go until they can reform into a new body and basically be reincarnated. I mean, that makes perfect sense, and it's very workable. I always kind of pictured it like the Mako energy from Final Fantasy VII, which is kind of, you know, just all life had an essence, and then when that life expired, it went back into the pool of whatever that essence was until it was reused. And that kind of follows along the same vein as well. So, yeah, I would have no issue with that. And again, I say let the DMs have this one. If your players are asking what the hell the stars are, you can throw dice at your players and say D and D magic, which is always a good option. Just cast magic missile and you're fine. Or retcon something up and make it something to hook your players in. Why not? I mean Well you don't have you, to retcon it because there isn't any established lore. So just right. come up with whatever you want. Exactly. Then then cast magic missile and throw your pointy dice at people. So the plane as a whole is crisscrossed with all of these roads that lead from location to location. You can get from any one place to any other place within the plane by following the roads. And if you happen to know the proper key phrase, you can travel almost instantly from one location to another. It functions as almost like a password for a portal. And so it just like a wormhole sh- squishes the distance between the two points gotcha. and you just sort of pass from one to the other. You just kind of bamf over. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You fold the space in between the two points until the points touch. Exactly. Now see the roads here would be something I definitely would enjoy on this realm. Again, I grew up in central California where it is very, very flat. And so the city I grew up in had straight perpendicular streets that ran north, south, east, west. And it was great, especially for giving directions. You want to know where storage, you call them up, you collect something up. Oh, Oh, we're on the northeast corner of X and Y. Oh, we're on the southwest corner of Q and R. And you knew exactly where you were. You knew what side of the street you're going to be on, where to go. It was easy. Moving over here to East Tennessee, where it is very hilly, communities are a lot older. The streets are very windy. They don't run as straight because, again, you've got geography and rocks in the middle of things. And so it's somewhere over there ish no no i want northwest corner of blank and blank i know where i'm going this isn't ohio james Uh, neither was california but it was great (laughs) it was beautiful it was orderly and perfect and i knew where i was going you couldn't get lost once you learned your street maps because you just had to know the order of streets and okay you can get anywhere so the main thing about the roads is that you are expected to use the roads. Yes. If you are walking through the wilderness or walking through a field, instead of using the road, you will be stopped and you will be questioned extensively because refusing to follow the roads clearly indicates that you have a certain contempt for the law. And right. this being a lawful plane, they can't have that. So they have, nope. they're going to ask you 15 million questions and ascertain exactly what you're doing here and why you aren't following the rules. And remember, if you ask if you're free to go or if you are being detained, then that is 
pretty much just admission of guilt right away and you're going to get booted. <laughs> that is you asking to be detained. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there is no flexibility for the law and the law rules supreme. Yes. And there are militia patrols that wander the roads all the time and they will stop and question anyone, even farmers working in the fields that they see who are not following the roads because who knows if they're actually a spy dressed as a farmer right exactly because there is that level of paranoia in arcadia and we'll get to why there is that level of paranoia in arcadia here in a little bit but yes they are very much on the lookout for anyone who isn't of here and who isn't a strict adherent to the rules of here. Yes. And so if you have a player who innately has like some authoritative opposition disorder or anything like that, or just wants to buck, or they always want to play that edgy rogue no matter what, don't bring them here. Or do bring them here and watch the fun happen. (laughs) Because dice are going to start flying. Yes. And it won't be pretty. No. (laughs) Just go ahead and start rolling me a bunch of d6s and you're going to need a new character. (laughs) Right. Now, let's get into talking a little bit about the weather. Because the weather is regimented here in Arcadia too. Right. The weather is controlled by four individuals called the Storm Kings. These guys are pretty cool. In second edition, it's two men and two women. In third edition, it's three men and one woman. None of them are given names, but they are given identities. And... Even the women take the title of king to avoid confusion because it's always the something king in control of this one area, this one aspect of the weather. Right. I kind of see this as, was it Hephaestus? Hephaestus? There was Nefertiti, but there was the other female pharaoh. I can't remember her name right off the top of my head. But she even went as far as to wear the fake beard and stuff to look like a pharaoh because the title was pharaoh. So she didn't care that she was a woman. She was pharaoh. The same thing here. Whoever becomes one of the Storm Kings, their identity is wrapped up in the position. So male, female, whatever, you become the Storm King. Absolutely. So individually or in pairs, they create normal weather. They collaborate regularly to generate storms that cover the entirety of the plane. Certain areas can be exempted from the storm, but the Storm Kings rarely do. They usually just, okay, it's time for us to make a storm. We're going to make a storm. Boom. The entire plane is covered in a storm for a little while. And then when it's done, it's done. Is it the entire plane or sections? Yes. I figured, okay. I thought they... The entire plane. Okay. So the way I read it is they had patches and they had areas that they rotated and they had like set schedules. To for the follow. normal weather, yes. Okay, perfect. And the storms themselves have specific rules attached to them. They never last longer than 24 hours. There's always at least three days between storms. And there's never more than a week between storms. Right. And given that a month is 27 days, I would say that it's a nine day week as opposed to a seven day week. That would make sense. Because it's all threes. You know, there would be three weeks, nine days long. And then make, make one month and then three months to a season. Yep. No, that fits. And I don't remember how many how many days were in a month in the Julian calendar. I believe it was just a straight 30. Was it a straight 30? Yeah. Because, you know, when they started moving around, they took a day for July. And then they took another day from February from August because February would have had 30. And that's why February only has 28 days because they stole two of them for July and August when they moved over to the proper Julian calendar. Because both July and August right. have 31 because those were important days. So they had to have the extra day in each of those. Which is why it's the only two months that have 31 and 31. But the calendar before the Julian 
Julian calendar only had 10 months in it, right? Correct. And how many? 10 months of 30 days. Yeah. 10, it was 10 months. of th- Okay. Yeah. Rabbit trails all over the place. Yeah. We're, we're, um, we're going to get stomped by these guards. That's malicious going to knock on our doors. <laughs> yeah, just about. So each of the kings lives in a citadel that is on top of this spire mountain, and they're all evenly spaced around the orb of day and night. So the orb of day and night is going to be at the top of a mountain, ostensibly smack dab in the center of the plane. And then the four kings are equidistant around this mountain. Right. I mean, if you were put them on the map, they would literally be in the four corners of the map. Yes, uh, they would be north, south, east, and west in the cardinal directions. Oh, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, I could put them in the cardinal. No, they, I, I, they I, are. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't put that in the notes, but they are. Okay. I was going to say, because like some of the old Victorian maps where you'd have like the wind in one corner and the sun on the other, and that's literally how they drew out the maps, so they could like, here be weather. Right, yeah. <laughs> and while they are infinitely far away from it, because of planar geography and it being an infinite plane, you can reach the orb from any one of these citadels in 3D6 days, 3 to 18 days. I guess basically depending on why you're going and whether or not you have the proper passphrase to get from point A to point B quickly. Yeah, and again, going with the frame, because everything in this realm is for, quote, the greater good. So it would be, depending if you needed to get to one of these citadels for personal reasons or to petition for a group of people or to correct some issue that might be kind of straying. So again, the more people or the broader benefit for your visit, the quicker you're going to get there. Yeah, and the important thing to keep in mind about all of these storm kings is that they are mortals they are not petitioners they are not immortal planar entities they are mortals and they wear the mantle of the storm king and it gets passed from king to king as one of them dies and passes it on to their successor it's kind of like the sorcerer supreme kind of yeah Um, and each of the kings has a circle of acolytes that they are tasked with training to make sure that there's always somebody capable of taking up the mantle whenever they pass it on. Kind of like the Sorcerer Supreme. (laughs) Yeah. All of the kings are at least 15th level, and in order for an acolyte to receive the mantle, they have to be at least 10th level. And they unlock additional elements of the mantle as they reach that 15th level. And by the time they reach that 15th level, all of their on-the-job learning, if you will, has successfully gotten them to the point where they've unlocked all of the details of their mantle. Almost like it's an heirloom item or something. Which would be a great thing to write up as an actual item would be the heirloom items for these. And if you want some guidance on how to do that, there is a patron-exclusive write-up that we did that will do that for you. Exactly. You know, not telling you to spend money on us or anything, but... (laughs) All right, so let's touch on these four kings for a minute. The first one is the Cloud King. In the second edition, he is a 15th level male half-elf thief. This would absolutely be the King of Diamonds. (laughs) He is the most busy of the kings because there's always clouds somewhere in Arcadia. His powers are not the most powerful in sheer ability, but almost everything that the other kings have to do relies on him. So they have to work with him in order to do what they want to do in order to get their jobs done, because you don't have a whole lot of weather effects without clouds. Stance reason. All of the kings have innate at will spells that are 
wrapped up in the mantle. And I think that this is inherent on them remaining within their citadel, remaining within their enclave where they're doing their weather thing within their seat of power within their seat of power. Thank you. Those are the words I was looking for, (laughs) (laughs) but because a lot of these spells are very powerful spells and they get them at will, which means that they can cast them an unlimited number of times per day. The cloud King gets all of the spells associated with clouds and fog and all of the spells from the illusion school. So that includes things like cloud kill, stinking cloud, control weather, Fog Cloud, Incendiary Cloud, this fun second edition spell called Death Fog. Oh my. Which is Cloud Kill, but acid instead of poison. Ew. Oh, that's vicious. It lasts 1d6 plus caster level rounds, and any creature within it takes one point of damage the first round, two points of damage the second round, four points of damage the third round, eight points of damage the fourth round, and eight points of damage every subsequent round that they're in it. Yeah, that's nasty. And it kills vegetation. Like, you can kill any vegetation in 16 rounds. And anything that is a small tree or smaller in eight or fewer rounds. So small trees are eight rounds, bushes and shrubs are four rounds, and just general, like, plants grass and other small vegetation that's like two rounds so in third edition and 3.5 there was this really cool prestige class called a blighter and it was basically an evil druid and they actually got their spell powers or spell slots per day by killing or destroying a set amount of wildlife or vegetation and so this kind of death fog would be perfect for a blighter so i think like a circle of spores or even just a druid focused campaign i think giving a blighter this kind of skill set, you know, would be, or the spell set would be an amazing thing to do. I think that would be a really good hook. And I think that would work well with a circle of spores because spores, you can manipulate spores to be cloud-like because they do float. They do float. They're cloud-like. Again, your spores, your mushrooms are going to be smaller. So something like this death cloud is going to strike generally a lot faster. And then we have our, what do we name it? With Tales of the Manticore last week, two weeks ago. Oh, the Prismatocillin. The Prismatocillin, yes. Again, would be a wonderful thing to plug in there as well. Would be perfect. And so I like that too. So, I mean, we could take all those things and, and we could really set up a good scenario with that. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. The next king is the Wind King. This is one of the female ones as a 16th level female human wizard. Like the Cloud King, she isn't as powerful as the others, but is certainly necessary for all the others to do their job. It's hard for the Cloud King to do his job of positioning the clouds where they need to be without the Wind King having the wind to move the clouds. So they work together a lot. They very commonly work together to just make the average normal weather every day in Arcadia. I'm good with that. Her at-will spells include Clear Audience, Conjure Air Elemental, Control Weather, because they all have control weather, Control Winds, Fly, Gust of Wind, Levitation, Wind Walk, Wind Wall, and Wraith Form, which was a second edition spell that lets you become incorporeal. That was a fun spell. Yeah, I think that spell carried into third edition. I don't remember. There are a lot of spells in third edition that haven't made it into fifth edition. Right. But I think that one was one of them. It may not have been called Wraith Form anymore. It may have been called like Become Incorporeal or Become Ethereal. Uh, That sounds closer to correct. I recall a Wraith Form at some point, and I definitely know there was a spell to make you incorporeal. So we'll have to look that one up later. Yeah. All right. The next one is the Rain King. Q counting crows, Um, (laughs) especially since this is the other female king. 
is an 18th level female tiefling bard. She's going to make it rain, huh? Because the bard is definitely going to be sitting there at the club making it rain. (laughs) She has a very close relationship with the Cloud King as their realms and duties are dependent on one another. You can't have rain without clouds. But she's also very temperamental. It says that her demeanor changes like a summer rain becomes a hailstorm. Yeah, I don't like her. (laughs) She commands all aspects of water. She's nearly as powerful as the Lightning King, who is the fourth king. And she and all of her acolytes are always bards. Their magic is based on the music of the falling rain, that hissing cadence that you get with the falling rain. And her at-will spells include color spray, control weather, create water, free action, which was the second edition version of what is now freedom of movement, Odalux freezing sphere, different second edition spells that got lumped together into control water, prismatic spray, transmute rock to mud, wall of ice, water breathing, and water walk. Not a bad list. No. And I, I like that they included prismatic spray and color spray. Yeah. Because that's rainbows. Exactly. You can't, can't have magic. rainbows without rain. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a nice touch. And then the final one, the Lightning King, is a 20th level male human fighter. He is the most volatile and powerful of the kings, but also the most dependent on the others to do his duties. It's really hard to do lightning without the proper weather conditions for lightning to happen. Exactly. While he is bound by the duties of his position, he is the most likely to abuse his powers for personal gain because was it power corrupts and absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. Perfect. Exactly. Yeah. So his innate powers are those associated with light and electricity. So his at will spells include chain lightning, control weather, dancing lights, force cage, which I think was is really cool because that's like a Faraday cage. Yeah. Heat metal, lightning bolt, power word blind, protection from lightning, and pyrotechnics. Snazzy. He has only the power to harm, never to heal. Again, appropriate for lightning. Yep. And he carries a plus four sword that is shaped like a lightning bolt and ten javelins of lightning. Okay, so this is like the Disney version of Zeus. I like it. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, and when I say the Disney version of Zeus, I don't mean the Hercules Disney version. I'm thinking like the um, old Fantasia where he's up there just tossing the lightning bolts. Okay. I thought you were talking about Liam Neeson in, uh, oh, what was it? The one with Perseus, where Liam Neeson says, release the Kraken. Oh, Clash of the Titans? Clash of the Titans. Yeah. That could be a way to do it, too. Yeah, that would be a terrible way. No, that would fit. Both of them. That's that's what I was thinking. Okay. Have you ever seen the Fantasia video from way back, like the 50s, I think it was? Yes. Yeah, so. Yeah, I grew up with that Fantasia, so. Okay, perfect. My favorite one was the Cossack dance with the little mushrooms. Yeah, that's always fun. My favorite was the night on Bald Mountain, because I wasn't supposed to watch that one, because I had ghosts. ghosts Yeah. (laughs) Of course, knowing you, I can see why that would be your favorite. (laughs) That one always creeped me out. I didn't like watching that one. All right, so let's talk a little bit about magic in Arcadia. Every aspect of magic in Arcadia is ritualized, and so all spells take twice as long to cast. So if you're coming in as a spellcaster, you're going to have a bad time because you're going to say, okay, I'm going to cast X spell, and then that's going to be your turn. And then the next turn, you get to actually cast it. Right. Even your insta-cast spells will take at least a full turn. Well, I mean, if they take an action, they're going to take 
two, two actions. actions. Well, I'm thinking like even like your bonus action or sometimes you have your reaction spells. You know, they used to be insta-cast. I would DM rule that they would take at least a full turn. Right. That's what I'm saying is you start yeah. casting it. It functions like that caveat in the slow spell where you have to roll a d20 and see if you cast your spell on this turn or next turn. Right. But instead, it always just happens on the next turn. Exactly. Perfect. So spells generally don't work if the caster doesn't have the good of more than a single person in mind while casting it, or if they're used for the good of one group to the detriment of another larger group, because Arcadia is all about the greater good. But these limitations can be overcome with a proper frame of mind whenever you're actually casting the spell. So you have to trick yourself into believing that your spells are being cast for the greater good in whatever situation you're in. So that would be me as a DM. Anytime anyone would want to cast a spell, because again, it's going to take at least two turns. So that first turn, explain how this spell is going to help you or anyone else. And then depending on how they're doing it, I would adjust their spell effects dustly. And creatures that are native to the plane of Arcadia are immune to being summoned by spells that would summon creatures unless the spell is cast by a planar entity so another creature from the outer planes so let's say a god walks in and casts summon creatures or if it was like a diva or you know a proxy of one of the gods or someone who is native to the outer planes in general who is not opposed to the alignment of the plane so you're going to have problems if you're coming in from arborea and trying to do this because the law versus chaos and they're going to fight them every step of the way. But if it was an Archon coming in from Mount Celestia, they should be able to summon a creature native to Arcadia to aid them without any issue. Exactly. But a cleric of, say, St. Cuthbert, who happens to have a realm here in Arcadia, if a cleric of St. Cuthbert comes in and tries to cast Summon Celestial and tried to pull in one of the creatures native to Arcadia, it wouldn't work. Right. Because the creature's in the plane are immune to being the subject of a summoning spell from a caster from the material plane. With that in mind, (laughs) let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the individual schools, how they work. So conjuration spells, we touched on a little bit. If the goal of the spell is to provide a benefit for the greater good, the conjuration spell automatically has the best result possible and the summoned creatures will serve willingly and to the best of their ability. If the goal is selfish, or goes against the will of the plane, the spell automatically has the weakest result possible, and the summoned creature fights the summoner's control whenever they can. So again, that for me, it would be a DM's call that, as they were preparing, what do you plan to do with the spell? What do you want the spell to do? And how is it going to affect you and those around you? So again, if there's a bunch of thirsty people and you summon water so they have water to drink, yeah, then you're going to get as much as you need right there. Everyone's going to be happy. But if you wanted to like summon an imp to go and burn down someone's fence, then you're going to get the weakest, angriest imp you could possibly imagine. Yeah, and you're going to end up setting your pants on fire. Exactly. And then summoning the militia who's going to stomp you for being an evil douche. Yeah, pretty much. Divination spells. Only divinations that affect a group of four or more people are effective. One party. (laughs) Unless the spell is designed specifically to target a single person, it will not function with a group smaller than four. All right, that works. That's fairly cut and dry. Yeah. I like it. For enchantment or charm spells, every target gets an automatic save, even if they wouldn't. If they would normally get a save, they get a plus two bonus on their save. And if they make their save, 
then the caster has to also save or fall under the effects of the spell as if their target had cast it on them. A fair bit of balance and turnabout's fair play. I like it. Because there is a certain amount of free will inherent within the plane because it is a good aligned plane. Right. And so anything that is going to subvert that free will, or at least the illusion of free will, is going to have a certain amount of backlash to it. Next up, illusions and phantasms. Illusions cast in Arcadia are obviously illusions, as deception isn't welcome in the plane. Just don't. (laughs) Yeah. You are expected to tell the truth. An illusion is considered a lie. All non-petitioner natives to the plane automatically see through illusions. They can automatically tell that it's an illusion. And any petitioner gets a plus two bonus to save against the illusion. Actually, also any mortal that is visiting the plane also gets that plus two bonus. So anything that is not a native to the plane, which would automatically see through it, gets that plus two bonus to see through your illusions. Yeah, so illusion magic, just don't. Next up is necromancy. Keep in mind that in second edition, all of your healing spells were classified as necromancy and not evocation. I say rightly so, but that's another tirade for another day. (laughs) Spells that promote the common wheel and health are twice as effective. So all of your healing spells are going to heal twice as many hit points. All of your restoration spells are going to be twice as effective at removing afflictions, things of that nature. Spells that raise the dead or kill can only be cast if used for the common good. So things like defending a town or conquering in the name of a good for the largest number. So if you are part of this group that has 500 people in it and you're being opposed by that group that has 100 people in it, boy, howdy, you're okay. Right. If you're in that group of 100 and you're trying to fight off the oppression of that group of 500, nope, no, you're not. That explains it. I was thinking like a good time for this is like if you were defending and driving out evil on this plane, because apparently evil does every mm-hmm. once in a while hop in to be driven out and somehow your general was slain. You could resurrect with necromancy that general, bring them back to life. Absolutely. So they could continue fighting. Because spells like revivify and resurrection and true resurrection are necromancy, necromancy. spells. Yay, necromancy. <laughs> so if the spell is not being used for the greater good, then the spell fails horribly. So summoned or animated undead immediately turn on their summoners. Or it costs you an arm and a leg and you'd rather get stuck in a suit of armor. Or we can go full metal alchemist on this, yeah. (laughs) Because harmful spells will turn back on their caster. So if you're casting inflict wounds and you don't have the greater good in mind whenever you're doing it, you're going to get withered pretty bad. You're casting inflict wounds just not where you thought you were. (laughs) You're casting it on yourself. I'm going to Charlie Murphy myself in the face. (laughs) Wild magic. So being a plane of law, wild magic is diminished in Arcadia. It's not outright banned like it is in Mechanus. So all wild magic spells are cast as if two levels lower than normal. And like with Acheron, you can't have a wild magic surge in Arcadia. It just won't surge. I like that. I could, again, right here, see this could be a plane where you would have maybe a sanctuary for a bunch of wild magic sorcerers where they would be quote, quote, safe. And this, unfortunately, fortunately, depending on your particular bent or storytelling, would be the type of place to establish 
such a type of sanctuary to prevent wild magic. This would be everything the X-Men's about. <laughs> yes, this would be where Professor Xavier's Academy is. Yeah, on a good day. I mean, I could see the other end of Magneto's that setting up an Akron. Professor Xavier is setting up an Arcadia. Yeah, I could see that. I think the Academy would be the intent here in Arcadia, but I still see it becoming very heavy-handed. Yeah, I can see that because you're trying to wrangle all of the chaotic nature of all of these individuals and force them into and a, force them into law yeah force them away from chaos and so yeah there is going to be a certain amount of that and the nature of the plane is going to play into that pretty heavily too yes because the influence of the plane is going to discourage that sort of behavior to begin with right like i said this plane doesn't sit too terribly well with me <laughs> and then finally with elemental magic the effectiveness of spells cast depends on the alignment of the caster. So a lawful neutral caster with good tendencies or a lawful good caster with neutral tendencies, their elemental spells are going to be doubly effective. Okay. So a lawful good wizard with neutral tendencies is going to have a double-powered fireball. Ooh, s'mores for everyone. S'mores for everyone. Everyone is a s'more at that point. <laughs> Anyone who is at least not evil and not chaotic their spells are cast normally. So that's four of your nine types. I mean, that's almost half. And any evil or chaotic caster, their spells automatically fail because the elements are tied to the plane. And so you're drawing your elemental power from the nature of the plane. And so it prevents evil or chaos from actually drawing on that power. No, that makes sense. Decent rules. Again, something with the older additions, the player's alignment and how they played affected their spells and what they did a lot more than 5th edition. And I'm really interested to see what they do with alignment in D&D 50 coming up. I don't know if they have named it or not yet. I really hope they name it D&D 50. But I am very interested to see how they are going to deal with alignment overall. Because again, that is becoming one of those things that is slowly fading back. Yeah, we actually had a little bit of a discussion about that. I had the privilege of being on the panel for Goblin Corner's 100th episode. They did a big live stream and it was just like two hours of chaos. That sounds like a great time, yeah. It was a great time. I unfortunately had life happening, so I wasn't able to join in. But again, congrats to Goblin's Corner for your 100th. Well, well done. Yes, absolutely. And I forget who it was, but one of the other panelists brought up that they thought that because Wizards is melding their D&D and their Magic the Gathering IPs a little okay. bit, that the next edition of D&D might end up going towards something with more of the mana color type system. Interesting. Where each of the five colors represents five ideals, and then you can pick two of them and combine them into sort of an ideal system for your character i could like that i think if done correctly that could be a lot of fun i'd be interested to see how they roll it out yeah and that's all speculation but i think that would be an interesting way to do it if they want to truly get away from alignment as mechanic because right now they have gotten away from alignment actually functioning as a mechanic in most cases but the alignment system is still there it's this vestige from the older editions that they haven't cut out yet right Anyway, that is, again, another conversation for another episode. Did we mention there's rabbit trails in Arcadia? They're all over the place. Oh, buddy. Bunnies everywhere. <laughs> but they're all in nice straight lines perpendicular to the road. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the powers in Arcadia, the gods that happen to be in Arcadia. Arcadia has a lot of gods in it. Like, a lot, a lot. Diving into second edition, some of the ones that are mentioned are Itsunagi and Itsunami, 
They're a husband and wife gods of creation from the Japanese pantheon. They have a realm here. Lu Xing, I hope I'm saying that right. The god of bureaucrats and rewards from the celestial bureaucracy, which is the D&Dified Chinese pantheon, has a realm here. There are four of the Mulharandi gods, which are the D&D interpretations of the Egyptian gods. They share a realm called Heliopolis. The two dominant gods in Heliopolis are Ra and Osiris. And then the secondary gods under them are Isis and Horus. So they are cut and paste from Egyptian mythology into D&D. I like it. Down and down. Just drop a pyramid right in the middle of it. (laughs) One that I missed going through for these notes that I have since found going through for next week's notes, Marduk from Babylonian oh, mythology, nice. which is the Utheric pantheon in D&D. He has a realm called Marduk, which has a city called Marduk, <laughs> where he resides. They actually tied a lot of the Babylonian, Assyrian, Sumerian lore in with him in his realm, which is really cool. And we'll definitely touch on that next week. Excellent. That's going to be fun. Mainly because Tiamat started as a Sumerian god. Correct. A goddess. Yes. And Marduk and Tiamat have beef. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Next one is Azuth. Azuth is a Faerunian lesser god of energy and mages, though importantly, not magic. He is a lesser god in service to Mistra, who is the goddess of magic, who is the one that's died like three times. Well, I mean, you have rough days. Yeah. That's sort of the thing that happens is... Oh, a new addition is out. We have to kill Mistra again. I mean, that's what you do. And I think if I recall correctly, the death of Mistra in the early part of fourth edition is what caused the spell plague. I'm not yes. certain. I think that's correct. I know that her death and the spell plague are connected, but exactly what that connection is, I'm fuzzy on. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Then we have Clangedon Silverbeard, who is the dwarven god of war and battle. Because he is a bit more in the line of order than the rest of the Dwarven Pantheon. He is in Arcadia and not in Mount Celestia because you have to have that regimented order and the good of the whole in mind for running an army. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not going to have a legion if everyone's individualized. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So you're thinking about the unit. You're thinking about the battalion. You're not thinking about the individual soldier. Right. Another dwarven god that has a realm here is Rayorks, who is the patron of the dwarves of Kryn from the Dragonlance setting. He is a god of creation, and this is one that can go into a whole episode all by himself. (laughs) Rayorks supposedly forced creation from the essence of the god Chaos, which he then trapped inside of this artifact called the Grey Gem, which has a really long history within Dragonlance. It's the reason why multiple races exist. There's a lot going on with the Grey Gem. And so that is something that could be its own whole episode, just the Grey Gem and what it did to the Dragonlance setting. The Grey Gem and the Dragon Orbs would both be really fun episodes. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) And then the last one from second edition, a little bit of a problematic one from a semantic standpoint, is uh, Meriadar, (laughs) who is, quote, the patron of mongrel men and humanoids who have given up their evil ways. The mongrel men were actually a creature race 
within second edition. They are a race where lots of different humanoids and monstrous humanoids is sort of like the melting pot of all of their physiologies. And so they will have different body parts that match different physiologies all within the same body. So you might have these big stumpy ogre legs and then you have a lizard folk arm and then orc tusks and a halfling head. A halfling head, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of weirdness going on with that. And that's one of those monsters that I'm kind of glad didn't make it out. But a lot of the creatures that are associated with Meriadar are a lot of what would have been your intrinsically evil aligned humanoids. So your yes. ogres, your orcs, your trolls, your goblinoids. All of those would have fallen under her. And these are all the individuals who abandoned their racial predilection towards evil. And so they have become exceptional and they are following her. And there is the intrinsic problem involved in all of that. Yeah. By saying that the entire race is evil and then these individuals are exceptional because they're not. Right. There are ways to do this. You could almost make this a redemptive factor. So even if the race is not, their societies might be, and then they have left their societies. And as pariah, she's taking them in would be a way to soften that considerably. Then you end up getting sort of a Drist Orden yeah, feel to it. Right. Where Drist is this good individual railing against the intrinsically evil society of Menzo Berenzan. It in itself being a microcosm of drow culture as a whole. Right. And Drist in his own right with the drow themselves. And and Salvatore has addressed this too, which I'm really glad he did. Has some innate problems. And again, we, we are getting past that. We're not perfect. We learn. We try to correct our mistakes when we recognize them. So a tip of the hat to Salvatore for that. And then the last god to bring up from third edition, St. Cuthbert. The Basilica of St. Cuthbert is here in Arcadia. It's a minor location within the plane because it didn't show up until third edition. So it's got like two sentences. Yeah, <laughs> it's got like three paragraphs. It's there. Go visit. It's a basilica. It's got paladins and stuff. Yay. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that the powers of Arcadia rarely enter into disputes with each other. They're always cooperating to try and make the whole plane a better place whenever possible. They also don't meddle with the machinations of their minions. So all of the pettiness is going on between their minions, whereas they get to stay up and above it and be all kumbaya and keep their hands clean. Clean, with air quotes. We know they're micromanaging. They just don't admit to it. Oh, no, no. Because it is a <laughs> mark of honor for them that they never play politics with their counterparts if they say they haven't. So they have this understanding that we don't direct what our minions do. Wait. What they do, they do under their own cognizance. Gotcha. Yeah, I would see that as a wink and a nod type thing. But again, DM choice. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're turning a willful blind eye to the efforts of their followers. Yeah. And if one of their followers starts to create too much of a problem, they're going to step in and resolve it. Of course. Because again, it's about saving face. What is that? Plausible deniability? Yes. <laughs> that is exactly how I would play that. Now, again, if you want a more homogenous play style, that's a DM called me personally as a DM. I see that. And that screams plausible deniability to me. I was over here doing this thing. That wasn't me at all. If you're a fan of the Dresden Files, very much how I would see the uh, white court working would be along these lines. Yes, 
the White Court of Vampires is definitely one of those things where as long as you don't draw too much attention to yourself, you get free reign. Yeah. As soon as you start causing problems for the court as a whole, you're going to be in trouble. Exactly. And the bigger the problem, the more trouble you're going to be in. And again, going back with some of the things, the same type of mental aspect you'd probably see with some green dragons as well. All right. Talk a little bit about the proxies and the petitioners. Arcadia has a disproportionately large number of proxies compared to the other planes. Part of that's because you have a lot more gods here. And part of it is specifically because the gods don't take a hands-on approach to resolving their conflicts. So they're going to take somebody who is powerful enough to have some clout and they're going to bestow some extra power on them and say, hey, go and do things for me and just leave it vague like that and let them do whatever it is they're going to do to promote that God's agenda. Right. Because again, if they're not going to be for the greater good of the plane, if they're not going to be lawful, the plane itself and its denizens are going to largely purge the problem. And the proxies all attempt to emulate the god they serve, or at least get as close as they can manage. The one primary example that they give for this is the main proxy for Klangeddon is a dwarf named Gidril Tuax, who dyes his beard to be the same color as Klangeddon's. He has his rune-carved axes to match the weapons of Klangeddon as closely as he can. He's wearing armor that is evocative of what the god wears. He's demonstrating through his appearance his connection, so that you know that this is the proxy of Klangeddon before he ever opens his mouth. As soon as you see him, you just know. And his particular nemesis is the proxy of Meriadar, who is a bugbear named Magruntal Denthead. That is an awesome name. I love it. <laughs> and she wanders around near Mount Klangeddon, preaching peace and tolerance for goblinoids, at least for the reformed ones. So she's preaching this sort of tolerance towards the goblinoids who have abandoned their sinful ways and are now following Meriadar. There's lots of problematic language there. Yeah. Again, this was the late 80s, so we hadn't quite gotten that level of cultural intelligence. Yeah, we'll go with that one. But she is apparently getting a certain amount of traction, and Gidril really wants to kill her. Gidril really wants to kill her because she's a bugbear. <laughs> yeah. She's a goblinoid, and he's a dwarf. He really wants to kill her, but he can't because of the laws of the plane. And so unless she takes hostile action towards him and his, he is forbidden to actually attack her. So that is the game. It is a very Friar Tuck, Sheriff of Nottingham sort of dynamic yes, going on there. Yes, very much. I was going to say, and I am sure McGruntle knows this and walks that line as finely as she possibly can. Absolutely. Yeah. Another noted proxy is Azoth's proxy, who is a 21st level wizard named Karelos Rune Twisted. He appears to everybody as just being this shriveled old man who's just walking around like a doddering old fool. But he is actually shrouded in illusion to make himself look like that. He is actually a very powerful wizard, and he will often gift wizards with a spell scroll or two that are spells that are way above their ability to cast. It's like, you know, walking up to a fifth level wizard and handing them a scroll of meteor swarm. <laughs> Here, play with this. And then he watches to see what they do with it. And if they go ahead and immediately try to use it, 
if this is a very powerful spell, I'm going to go ahead and use it. It shows a lack of forethought, a lack of planning. And so he just leaves them to their own devices. But if they save it for later and they set this as a goal, they're going to build themselves up to the point where they can cast this spell, where they can inscribe this spell into their spell book so they can learn this spell. Then he will do sort of an almost a remote tutelage sort of deal where whenever they need help, he might just show up and help them. See, this would be my kind of proxy. This is exactly something I would do. It's like, here, you can play with fire. And if they can show the restraint and wisdom to understand that they have something beyond what they're building. So they show the restraint to understand it before they use it even. Yeah, you're going to support that. Good job. You know, you can earn more power because you have respect for the power you've been given type thing. And then the last proxy that's specifically mentioned is the Sphinx, as in the Sphinx which is a proxy of Ra and Osiris jointly. Just asking riddles. (laughs) Just asking riddles. Probably sitting outside of Heliopolis, making sure that the undesirables don't get in. Yep, I like it. Then going into the petitioners, all of the petitioners here in Arcadia appear as they did in life, though they're usually more hale and hearty than they were in life. So you're going to not have the issues of starvation or disease or all of those other things that disproportionately affect the less well-to-do individuals that are going to be the sort of people who end up getting here. Imagine that. So all manner of folk are here in Arcadia and is specifically states without regard to color, height, age, or species. So it doesn't matter if you meet the alignment criteria, you get in. Okay. Surprisingly open-minded for second edition. Yes. But we digress. Well, I mean, the fact that they mentioned color kind of makes me cringe a little bit right there, just right off the... Yeah, no, we accept everybody. Even I'm like, really, dude? Really? You actually had to put that in text that, okay, fine. Just, yeah. We'll let it go. <laughs> yep, that's right. And so they are all fanatically devoted to ensuring the common good for the plane is maintained. Many of the more militant ones end up patrolling the borders of the plane, looking for outsiders that would come in and threaten the balance of their home, mainly because... The way that you progress within Arcadia is you get more in line with this ideal of the common good. And one of the things that you can notice if you're just looking at the petitioners is they all start very young. They start basically looking like young adults. And as they progress along their path towards enlightenment or whatever, they become more and more aged looking. So by the time you get to about middle age, that's whenever you're able to transition from the first layer to the second layer. Okay. But there's some problems because the third layer disappeared. Basically, what ended up happening is there was a catastrophic shift in alignment in that third layer, and it got transposed into Mechanus. Right. So the bottom layer of Arcadia is now a cog in Mechanus. Which is odd and problematic in its own right, and definitely a bit frightening when you think about it. Yeah, and that's part of what has fostered all of this paranoia within the plane is because they don't want to lose the next layer of the plane to Mechanist 2. Right, or wherever else potentially. Because if you can have an alignment shift, you can have an alignment shift in any direction, theoretically. But again, the fact that this bottom layer is gone is a very, very closely held secret. Well, yes and no. I mean, it is known that the layer is no longer there and that it is in Mechanist. The reason why is what is not known. Gotcha. 
And that's also how the Formians ended up making it from Arcadia into Mechanus is because the Formians are native to Arcadia. Which again, as a hive creature insect would make perfect sense. And again, you can kind of see them fit in Mechanus, but we always thought, well, that's kind of weird. A bunch of gears and then here's a bunch of hive. So this does explain that shift. All right. One of the very important things to know about the petitioners of Arcadia is that they all have the ability, no alignment, and they use it as often as they can. Yes. So everybody that you run into, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to check your alignment. They're going to check your card to see if you belong. And if you don't belong, they're going to let you know. Yes. So those that are chaotic or neutral are allowed to remain so long as they abide by the laws of Arcadia. And they are also good aligned. Yes. Those that are true neutral or chaotic neutral are asked to finish their business and then politely leave. Please GTFO. (laughs) Make your purchase and leave. The store closed five minutes ago. Those that are evil, even a little bit, are attacked on site, no questions asked. You get the boot. Which does give me a little bit of a pause because they are primarily lawful, which to me says that this should be going towards chaos and not towards evil. I mean, I don't know, because I think they're focusing more on the good aspect for this than not. They are, but the whole where the plane sits on the great wheel. Right. It is mostly lawful, a little bit good. See, I thought it was mostly lawful, a little bit neutral, both good. No, because it is sitting between lawful, neutral and lawful good. Gotcha. So they are lawful, a little bit good, neutral good. Eh, I mean, again, that would be a DM call, but yeah, no, I mean, you do both case. This is the mechanic as it is written in the older editions. So that's the mechanic we're going to present. But it just seems to me like somebody from Easgard is going to have more problems here than somebody from Akron. Because somebody from Easgard is on the opposite end of the law chaos spectrum. Yeah. They're coming from the other side of the wheel, whereas Akron is almost neighbors. Right. But I digress. So while the petitioners claim they want what's best for everyone, it commonly means what's best for my crowd. So many salty comments I can make right now, but I will be polite and reserve. (laughs) Hashtag American politics. Exactly. My very own echo chamber. Yeah, right? It's Facebook. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) That's it. You went there. You did it. You went there. Arcadia's Facebook. Oh, my God, dude. You went there. All right. I did. (laughs) I'm not even ashamed. (laughs) And so we mentioned that the third layer is gone. That has resulted in a problem with the advancement process, because now the petitioners who have reached the level of attunement to the plane to advance to the third layer have nowhere to go. And so the second layer has filled up. And so now there are petitioners in the first layer that are ready to move on to the second layer, but they can't because there's no room. And so now there's starting to be a little bit of chaos thrown into everything because suddenly there are things that don't have a place. And this is where the whole realm is just going to get shifted somewhere else now. Chaos. (laughs) And that's part of what all of this xenophobic backlash is, is everybody is trying to figure out where they fit. And so they're just sort of cementing their group as where they fit. Right. And so it's becoming microcosms instead of the plane as a whole. We're not commenting on American politics at all. No, 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 we're not. No, no, we're not. Okay. Nothing. Um, One, two, three, not it. (laughs) Yep. All right. So there's one primary faction operating in Arcadia and that faction 
out of Sigil is called the Harmonium. Their nickname are the Hardheads for what should hopefully be obvious reasons because they're in Arcadia. They control a town called Melodia on the second layer of the plane, and they have basically their re-education camps. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> like I said, once you start digging into this plane, it gets kind of icky really fast. It does. Really fast. It really does. <laughs> so they also maintain patrols that monitor all of the gates and portals within Arcadia that lead to other planes or to the realms within the plane. Basically, they're just controlling who comes and goes. That is their purpose. And within Sigil, they are basically the police force. They are the ones that are going to ensure that law and order are being followed. All right, now let's get into some of the creatures for the last section. We've been going pretty long, but let's get into it real quick. Yeah, critters. So first off, the Einherjar, who we have mentioned in multiple planes at this point, they have a very strong presence here. The more I go, the more disorganized it seems about where the Einherjar actually call home. That's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's, that seems to be what it is, because there are Einherjar that are drawn from the petitioners of Arcadia. They have numerous patrols that go throughout the plane and the structure of the patrol takes on the norms of whichever divine realm or town they happen to be nearest to at the moment. For example, if they're near Heliopolis, you would have one overseer accompanied by peasants or trained infantry. Whereas whenever you're near Meridar's realm, which is all about peace and redemption, they would all be considered equals with one of them acting as a spokesperson acting on the wishes of the group. Gotcha. As I mentioned, the Formians are here, the ant centaur people. I like them. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're great. We did a write up for them. Yes, we have, which I might go through again and polish up a little bit. Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just kind of always wanted an ant farm when I was little. So I kind of like these guys. So it's assumed that the Formians and Mechanists arrived in Mechanus when the third layer was subsumed into Mechanus and they just sort of traveled with it. Other creatures that are found on the plane include Asimon and Divas, so your angels, giant versions of normal creatures, Holyfonts, which are the little winged golden psionic elephants. Were they golden or pink? I thought they were pink. No, we said that they could be pink because, oh, okay, you, gotcha. because you wanted them to be pink, but... That's right. They're still pink, damn it. <laughs> but according to lore, they are golden elephants. Okay, fine. And then another one is called the Shedu. I think that's how you pronounce it. Think a sphinx, but with a cow body. Not as impressive, but okay. It's a creature from Sumerian Assyrian mythology. Just, I'm kind of creeped out with a lady's face on a cow body. It just kind of weirds me out a bit. Well, it's, it's a okay. man's head on a cow body. Okay. Still kind of creepy, but okay. It is. I'm not <laughs> going to disagree with you on that. A little bit of mad cow disease. We're all right. <laughs> but there are a couple of creatures that I wanted to go into a little bit of detail on because they don't appear in later editions. One is called the Tuenrin. They're basically the more powerful cousins of the Kirin. Okay. And there is a suggestion in the Monstrous Compendium that it is actually a dimorphic species and that the Kirin are actually the males of the species. I like it. Because the Tuenrin are all female or are rumored to be all female. And then that raises questions of, well, how do they reproduce? They are roughly horse-like in build, but their coats have these fine golden scales that reflect prismatic light. They've got dark gold manes and tails and their horns. It says horse-like body, but they're kind of more like a gnu. 
Okay. So they do have the horns and they have that more of a bovine shaped head as opposed to an equine shaped head. And their horns and hooves are this sort of pinkish ivory. Okay, I can see that. They can speak any language and they can communicate through telepathy or empathy, which allows them to communicate with creatures that lack the intelligence to actually have a spoken language. So they can adequately communicate with any living creature. Okay. They also have an aura around them such that no non-evil creature would ever willingly attack them. So it's sort of a pacification aura almost around them. And being inherently good creatures, they automatically attack an evil creature anytime they find it. Okay, kill on sight. We like it. They are considered an even match for things like greater devils, so like pit fiends. Nice. Or true Tanari, so things like the Baylor or the Merilith. Very impressive. They're considered even matches for them. Wow, okay. They have superhuman intelligence. Their intelligence in second edition is 18 to 20. So they are tippity-top of the chart. They're up there with dragons. They're up there with some dragons. With some dragons, yes. Like the white dragon is still a five to seven. Yeah, granted. And they know when to push their attack and they know when to back off. So, for example, if they see a demon out on the astral sea, they're going to consider it fair game and they're going to attack it. If that demon runs away and hops through a portal into the abyss, they're not going to follow it through the portal into the abyss. Okay, so they've got some restraint, so I like them. They're capable of casting spells as a 20th level wizard, but with a whole lot more firepower. Because they get way more spell slots per day than your typical mortal caster. So each day, they get 15 first level spells, 14 second level spells, 13 third level spells, and on up until they get 7 ninth level spells per day. Sweet Jeebus. And they also get the spells Gaseous Form, Invisibility, Summon Weather, and Call Lightning at will. And can freely enter the Astral and Ethereal Planes at will. Wow. And their natural weapons are considered magical with an inherent plus five bonus. Dear Lord. Oh, we're not done yet. Um, Their big ability is their divine awe. Aww. Which affects any <laughs> creature that can see them when they use it. And all non-divine creatures, so anything that isn't a god, has to make a wisdom save or be awed, standing motionless for a number of turns equal to 20 minus their wisdom score. Wow. It wears off after one round if they are attacked, but whenever they awe a group of creatures, they can use suggestion or emotion on all of the odd creatures without them getting a save. Okay, these things are way OP. <laughs> oh, yes. So it could use this ability to inspire an army with courage or to provoke a legion of evil creatures to flee. And they explicitly don't attack odd creatures unless the creature is evil and they must destroy that creature to deter it from its purpose. Okay, I'm going to throw a little bit of Marvel shade right here because I kind of have to. Because okay. it was one of the things that really bothered me about Infinity War. But these things are pretty much Captain Marvel and Infinity War where they just bamfed her in so she could wave her hat and say, hey, look, I'm here. And everybody's like, yay, Captain Marvel, we can fight again. And they go back in. And Captain Marvel does like basically nothing in Infinity War except go in and wave to everybody. And they threw her in there just to say they had her in there. And I was really disappointed with that. They could have given her a lot larger role, again, still a relatively new character. But yeah, just kind of like, I don't think I would put these 
on the table as something to fight with or necessarily against. These are plot devices. Exactly, yeah. This would definitely be that DSX Machina thing to kind of give your party that extra boost mid-scenario, mid-battle to kind of push them a little further on. Right. Yeah. And I could definitely see going back and tying some of the other planes in. I can definitely see because we have the Rogue Secundus in Akron. Right. That is gathering power to try and go into Mechanist to take over the spawning pool to establish itself as the Primus. Right. Because it thinks that it should have been Primus to begin with. It's the one that has been tainted by evil. Tainted. Tainted. (laughs) I can definitely see this as being a plot point for Asmodeus trying to break the wheel because he's wanting to break the wheel so he can reform the wheel in his ideology. I can definitely see that as a stepping off point where he is helping this rogue Secundus amass the power it needs to go back into Mechanus. And then he has an ally in the Primus in Mechanus. And so he can march his forces from Bator through Acheron, through Mechanus into Arcadia, which is not going to be a very militant domain into Mount Celestia. Because if he can break Mount Celestia, he breaks the wheel. Okay, I can see that. And then I could see making an entire campaign where the whole plot of the campaign is the players trying to stop that from happening. I like it. And so these two Enrin would actually play a very pivotal role because they are the most powerful non-god entities in Arcadia. Yeah, no, I could definitely see that. I like it. That's kind of where I was getting at with that when I was reading through that. All right, last thing. I promise. (laughs) The last one are the Buseni. The Buseni are a race of shapeshifters native to Arcadia. They have this shiny black skin that reflects light like a uh, puddle of oil. I am very happy you pronounced it Buseni because I first seen this and I saw Busini and automatically I thought of Steve Buscemi. And I was like, okay, Steve these, all just have, yeah. Yeah, these all have the Buscemi eyes and you're just like, hey. <laughs> and now you can't get that picture out of your head, so it's stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so the Buseni are invisible in darkness unless they will themselves to be seen. Kind of cool. They reside in tunnels and caves throughout the plane. So they are typically a subterranean creature. They can take any form that they choose. Including Steve Buscemi. Including Steve Buscemi. (laughs) But it takes them five rounds to fully change from one shape to another. So it's not something that they can do in the middle of combat. Okay. Um, It's something that they do ahead of time, and they'll have a preferred form that they stay in most of the time. They act as the guardians between the layers of Arcadia. They stand guard between the first and second layers of Arcadia to make sure that nobody gets through that isn't supposed to. Whenever outsiders approach, they step out and silently make this display of power to stop them. They're kind of like the Swiss Guard at the Vatican, but not near as brightly colored. No. (laughs) And then depending on how the approaching party reacts to them, affects their actions following up. If they attack without any further provocation, the Busani attempt to kill them, as such murder hoboism is clearly a lawless act. Of course. But if they attempt to parlay, the Busani will communicate with them telepathically to discern their reason for visiting and allow them to pass if they are detected as being free of evil and malice. Um, Part of that detection, specifically mentioned, is completely disrobing and taking off all of your clothing and magic items and jewelry and stuff. 
Oh my. So that that way you don't have anything on your person that could mask your alignment. Okay, makes sense. They are rarely seen in groups and never seen as more than three at a time. And they don't have to eat or drink. Somehow they are magically nourished simply by following orders. That just sounds disgusting. (laughs) That's just wrong. Yeah, I will agree. Yes, that is some straight up lack of self-determination there. Yeah, I don't like that at all. That's a big old note for me. (laughs) So in combat, they use spines or claws that they are able to protrude from their forms as natural weapons. So they're kind of like the Venom symbiote. Yeah. Okay. I like that part. The Venom symbiote has a very similar feel to what these guys are. Yeah, I'm kind of getting that. Except for the following orders bit. Yeah. (laughs) They can also make a whirlwind attack, which lasts 1d6 rounds and deals 2d8 damage to each creature within reach each turn. Snazzy. But it's very much a last resort sort of thing because whenever that whirlwind ends, the Busani is basically incapacitated for one hour per round spent whirlwinding. Well, you get dizzy. They are immune to all charm, sleep, and paralysis effects, as well as lightning damage. They are resistant to cold and vulnerable to fire. So good against some dragons, but not all. And as we learned for our March Madness thing, you know, that sleep breath at the uh, chromatic set, or not the the, the metallic metallics. Yeah. That can wreck some days. Yes, it can. And they also can cast detect magic and no alignment at will. So if you are trying to hide your alignment magically, they will be able to tell. They're gonna know. It's almost like they were designed for a dungeon master who was having trouble with a party that was disguising their alignment or something. Yeah, someone was better. <laughs> like, I'll I'll show them. I'll show everyone. <laughs> so the skin of the Buseni is highly sought after in Akron and Bator because it stretches and doesn't rip. And okay. it also imparts some of the natural stealth abilities that the Buseni as a creature has. Okay. So a rogue wearing garb made out of Buseni hide in second edition would get a plus 25% bonus on sneak checks. So think a plus five to your D20. Quick and easy math. Yeah. So it's basically you get advantage on sneak checks. Yeah. But if you are seen wearing it within Arcadia or in possession of it within Arcadia or by a native of Arcadia outside of the plane, that's usually enough to warrant being attacked on site. Yeah. Hey, look, I'm wearing the skin of your protector. Look at me, guys. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a bit of a slap in the face. And the attacker usually demands some sort of reparations from the person wearing it. Okay. Even if it might lead to their death by making the demand. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. All right. So that is the end of it. I mean, we've (laughs) only been going for two hours. So thank you for staying with us for another very long episode. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, TikTok, and YouTube. You got them all. <laughs> yeah, just search under common taste. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash under common taste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. Most of them are free. Some of them are patron exclusive. Some of the patron exclusive ones are some really cool stuff. So if you want to get access to those and help support the channel financially, please consider becoming a patron. And finally, we are on Discord. We'd love for you to come and chat with us. You can find a link to our Discord channel in our show notes. 
Again, you can find our podcast wherever you find podcasts. If this is your first time hearing us, thank you for finding us. Uh, you can find us on iHeartRadio, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google. Just search under Common Taste. As always, please give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thanks once more for staying with us to the end. Next week, we're going to wrap up Arcadia. Yes, there's still more. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.